What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of FilmmakerU.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and every week we bring you an interview with a film professional to explore the craft of filmmaking. And this week is no different. I'm interviewing Deborah Scott, the costume designer for Back to the Future, Titanic, and more recently, the film that I think is poised to become the most successful film in the world, Avatar, Way of Water. Now, if you're not interested in costume design, I need to stop you before you leave because Deborah had to do is revolutionary for costume design. Now, if you know James Cameron, nothing is easy in his films. And Deborah had to do something I've never heard of for costume design, but I don't want to spoil the surprise. Now, before we get into this interview with Deborah, be sure to check out FilmmakerU.com's courses, where we bring in the industry's best to discuss their craft and show you their secrets. These industry experts include Eric Whip, colorist for Mad Max Fury Road, three-time Oscar-winning VFX supervisor Rob Legato, award-winning doc producer for HBO Sam Pollard, and so much more. Of course, when you go to filmmakeru.com, use the code the cutting room when you check out all one word, the cutting room, and you'll get 10% off anything at filmmakeru.com. Now, with all that said, let's hear what Deborah has to say about this crazy workflow for Avatar Way of Water. Now, I have to ask because when I think about Avatar, I think about people wearing those costumes with the little balls on it uh but you did the costume design so how did that work in avatar so complicated um i think people are all people think that right they think if it's a motion capture or in this case performance capture film we tend to think of people running around in crazy unitards with markers um and head rig and all that other thing but the truth is is that all of those characters, once they're finished performing or during their performance, have to be transferred to a visual element. Mm -hmm. And again, people make the assumption that that's done by the production designers or a VFX team. And and it is to some extent, I mean, there's incredibly talented VFX artists, but we give them, we design and made every single costume, prop, accessory, wig, all of it and then we hand that over to them and what that does is a couple of things is that it gives them a level to ascribe to in other words it better look as as good when you're done as it does when i've made it so they and then they do their wizardry right they scan it they use all of our we shoot incredible amounts of motion tests underwater in wind all sorts of different things in order for them to get motion simulation, animation, because again, these garments for the most part, unless you're talking about our uniforms or things like that, they're very one-of-a-kind bespoke unique pieces. So the computer programs not only don't know how to draw them, they don't know how to make them move because they don't understand quite what it is until they're handed it. Does that that make sense? It does. It's, it sounds like a crazy amount of work. (laughs) It's it's an enormous amount of work. It's very, it's very multifaceted because you design on paper, you make in real, real life, three dimension. And then there's the whole post process, which is quite lengthy. And uh, luckily, you know, Jim Cameron and John Lando both know that how important this is to the end result of the filmmaking, because you want the characters when you that the 3d is so immersive right that you need to know as a viewer if you're looking at it that you literally could reach out and touch it and know what it is 
So it's so tactile that it's incredibly important to go through this process. I'm going to interrupt this interview for one second. We want to thank Pixelview, one of our sponsors. They're a streaming solution for filmmakers. Pixelview lets you stream your work to remote clients for easy collaboration, and it works with both on-set teams and post-production teams. With built-in video chat, you can discuss and make changes in real time and stream directly from your editing software. Or you can use the hardware encoder to stream from DaVinci Resolve or the camera on set. See the promo code and the link in the video description below. So I, I want to step back then because you worked on the first avatar and on, on this avatar. And I'm wondering uh, when you get the script, you know, what, what did you pull from the script to start designing the look and the feel for this one? Well, luckily, like you said, we had the, that we had the template from the first movie in terms of this alien species, this clan of people. In that one, in that one, they were it was only one clan, right? And we understood them to be forest people. We understood a few things about them. Um, my job on this film was to twofold. One was to flesh out that clan that it had been now years later. Jake and Neytiri are parents, they have children, there are children involved, which we never had in film one. So to sort of flesh that out and take it further, develop, develop all these new characters with the visual narrative of their clothing. And then secondly, the new clan, which is the Metcayana, the clan that lives on the ocean, was to design that whole new thing. So in doing that, the script obviously tells us that they live on the ocean, that they're a basically a peaceful people who don't want to join in and take up arms. Um, and a, there's very little else to in descriptions about what they do or where, you know, we know when they draw and they have knives. We know, we know how they interact with their clothing per se. Um, it, and that's why, when I started to design it and just being able and allowed to design these characters top to toe, meaning hairstyle, uh, body art, all the costumes, so that you really have a chance to invest in the clan development and the character development. So that was, it was just, you know, opening a door to Jim's imagination, kind of, you know, jumping on through and, and really getting to just explore our world as a touchstone, the world that we know on earth, all the peoples that live in our world, all the island peoples all over the world, and then kind of focus in on the things that Jim wanted. So I have two questions from that, but the one, the first one that sort of popped in my head when you were talking about top to top to toe, um, the Navi are not the same proportions as humans, right? Like they're sort of taller and lankier. So how did you design for that with that in mind so that, cause obviously when you're doing the tests and stuff, it's going to be regular people wearing it. Right. So how do you design for that? Well, we started designing. It's, it's interesting that you say that because it's such a, a two fold, a hand in hand experience, because as we started to design on paper, right. Or in the, in our case, photo, in, in, in a computer, a lot of photo artists work that way now. Um, and we were, we didn't have, they had not yet developed the actual bodies of the characters. So 
it was kind of a guessing game at first, right? We knew Jake and Natiri. We had to alter them a little bit for some age requirements. We sort of guessed at ages of children. So we started kind of laying it out. And then as we went through our process of designing costumes, the character people were busy doing their part. But so that would come much later. And it came, we knew that the Metkayina people were also going to be basically of the same height right, and kind of stature, but they had physical differences. They had thicker necks and broader tails and different colored eyes and things like that. Well, that all developed as we went along. So as we got more information, we would update our artwork to reflect that. Sometimes our artwork came first. So if I put a hairstyle in for a particular character, they would follow that. When Jim, you know, approved that, they would then follow that template in their character build. Um, the challenge of the human to Navi relationship, because you can't, you can't build, there's no point of building it in Navi scale, right? We did sometimes for live action reference shooting, where you'd have a real character, spider, grabbing onto something of a Navi character, and it had to be exploded, so we'd have to make it quite big. But in general, the costumes were made all to human scale so that the human actors could wear them, like you said. And the challenge then is, as it goes through the digital process, that we had to work with, and that's why the post part of it is such, it's a, it's a lot of work and, a, and, and takes a long time. But what you're in essence doing is doing virtual fittings. You're doing the same kind that you would do in a dressing room with an actor but you're doing it with these computer artists as they develop a turntable in 3D and you're looking at back, front, side, you're, you're commenting on the fit, the color, the way it drapes. Um, it needs to be longer, it's not big enough. You know? So it was all those adjustments to fit the body. And then on top of that, we went really heavily into the materials, the weight, how it blew in the wind, how it floated underwater. And we did a lot of extensive testing so that we could inform the animators and the simulators. It's very fascinating. <laughs> so it's, it's so complex. And I it's, mean, it's a, whole yeah. new, it's a whole new costume design world. You know? So you're, you're pioneering the workflow for future <laughs> commentary. Yeah, I think a lot of people are starting to work in this way. I think Avatar is so cutting edge and so far ahead of everyone else that it, it really is a whole, it's, it's just, you know, so, so for students of costume design coming into the field now, it's a lot of new things to learn. So, you know, not just how to design a character or what fabrics to pick or how to build something or how to work on a set. It's also then how do you understand what the digital artists do so that you can direct and inform them? Well, and it's, it's interesting because, um, I feel badly almost for the schools because it's probably so hard because it's, you know, they're going to have to somehow show them to work with visual effects artists, which I don't know many design schools like that, that would have a VFX department, you know, yeah. to contact. It's hard. It's, I think that, I think there's very few schools, you know, I came up in the theater world, right? So that's how I learned and then transferred my schools to movie making. Um, I think there are not even that many theater you know, costume theater departments that talk with their film departments. 
So that's, you know, UCLA does have crossover now, for instance, but Mm -hmm. a lot of these schools, that's the first step. And then the second step is, you know, maybe it's guest lectures, maybe it's different kinds, you know, just information pouring down to people, but also on a professional level, you know, us as like, for instance, now I have a certain amount of expertise in this area, I can pass it along to others. I also, I want to jump back because I said I had two things that sort of popped into my head when you were talking initially. The other is you talked about like researching the different Aboriginal uh, groups around the world. Was there a particular one that you guys sort of focused on or James Cameron became focused on that you guys utilized? Um, was that the end of the question? Sorry. I yeah, sorry. <laughs> no I was like, uh, um, no, I think we, we mostly what I did first was to do the entire world you know, islands off of China, India, Arctic, all, you know, to see what were some of the, the rules per se of, of different clans. And you find out a lot of things. You find that people that, and especially these people that live on or near the water, which was our new, our new task. Um, Jim kind of ended up settling and concentrating in sort of greater Polynesia which includes Hawaii, which includes New Zealand, where we shot, which includes, you know, Samoa, Fiji, the Cook Islands. It's the entire huge French Polynesia, all these different, different um, cultures. Very, you know, we sometimes think, oh, they're kind of the same, but they're actually not at all. Some, they have links, but they're very different one to the next. Now, having said that, he settled down there because for one thing, Pandora is a, a hot moon. It's not a planet. I always say planet, but it's actually a moon. And it's very, the temperature is warm. So let's, let's just take that for granted that we're not going to be shooting in the Arctic. So let's narrow down a little bit. He also really wanted the, um, these very much, and, and, and you find this as a similarity through most of those islands, that the predominant hair color is black. The predominant hair type is curly. And that you know, you see it a lot in the movie where, you know, all these luscious curls and how beautiful they look flowing through the water. So we started to narrow in there, but we never specifically landed on one culture or another. The thing that I always find interesting, because like, I'm, I don't, like I took home ec, so I learned a bit about sewing, it not enough, <laughs> but you know, like I'm always like, oh, I, I should have kept going to learn to make clothes. Because you see something in a different culture and you're like, that's really cool. (laughs) Was there something that you, you know, because in this situation, you might not have seen these different cultures before that. Is there something that you discovered in there that you personally are like, oh, that's really neat. I want to use that later for something else. Yeah. I mean, I think I learned that uh, the value of the handicrafts, you know, our Navi people and many people around the world don't have sewing machines or didn't, you know, hundreds of years ago. So what does that mean? How do you stitch things together? How do you make a cloth? How do you not leather? How do you tool leather? How do you use, it's mostly the, the way in which for me, the biggest eye opener. And I think the thing that I carry with me is twofold. One is the things in, in your environment that you can use to make a decorative garment to wear is 
immense. Like looking outside your window, there's pine trees. You could go out there, you could get some of those pine needles. You could figure out a way to weave them together yeah. and make something incredible, right? Yeah, my so, wife, if I did that, <laughs> she'd be like, why'd you destroy the tree? <laughs> I, I expect that on your next assignment. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 you understand what I'm saying. So you, yeah, it, yeah. it opens your mind to the beauty of nature and how we can use it. And then secondly, just um, I think the knowledge that if you can think it up, if you can dream it up, and I mean, in that way, the collective we, in terms of my whole crew, all the people that worked for me, the many, many talented people, if you can think it up, you can figure out a way to make it. And sometimes that requires advanced technology, like 3D printing, hmm. you know, but nature is the, is the touchdown, is the guide. And that was really became hyper-focused for me. Have you been using? 3d in your in your creations yeah we did we did use some 3d printing we found that it was very very helpful when you were trying to make something that you couldn't otherwise make or more importantly that was that's that was very little for instance like if you're trying to make a giant tooth you could carve it right we ended up carving a lot but that you can also 3d print it as long as the but there 3d printing is incredible but it also there's some not so great things about it it's you know how you paint it how do you make it look really real if you have a 3d printed bone next to a real bone or you know a bone a fossil it's it's you know that's a whole other jump of art artistic endeavor to get there so but it was extremely helpful sometimes on i can think of some of the garments and one being uh a skirt of Kate Winslet's Renal character that had some shells on it that I collected from the beach. And they're very faint purple. And I brought them back to workshop and I said, okay, I'm gonna put these on the, the skirt, but I also wanna incorporate something alien in here. I want a different shape, a coral that doesn't look like a, a coral that we see, that we know. Uh, it has to be pale lavender you know, here's all the specifics. And so that we could print them and stick them in there with the real items and, and make something that looks quite natural. Yeah. Well, and just thinking, like you said, there, there's essentially a make it look real. Like you said, um, now I, I'm wondering, you know, we talked about looking at the script, but you know, like when you, when you start talking to the actors and getting them all sort of set up, they're going to start bringing in um, like how they interpret the character. So how did you, did, did you get anything in particular from them or uh, did they influence you in, in your design in any way? It, that's a, that's a really good question. I think it was more, it was much, it was a quite a dialogue. Um, I think that for someone like Sam Worthington, who plays Jake, he's sort of, been that character as well as Zoe had, right? They'd been that character. They knew what to expect in a way. So once they got the information of a design on paper, it was very easy for them to understand it and assimilate it and, you know, possibly put something on to, to understand the weight or the flow of a garment, but they understood the concept. It was more difficult working with the, although amazingly open-minded children, like here, okay, kids, you gotta run around like, 
so we would, we spent a few days, maybe a, a week of them. They had to learn a lot of moves. They had to learn parkour. They had to, but they also learned, here's what it feels like to run around with a tail, a loincloth. When you, when you jump down, when you squat down, this is how it's going to feel and look. And we would often put, especially with the children, put reference pieces on them because they had to continually be reminded more than an adult would um, that this is, this is what they were dealing with. Bare feet, you know, uh, necklaces that might move around, things like that. So um, in, in, in answer to your question too, like someone like, for example, Sigourney, was very, very, her character, Kiri, is very, very attuned to nature. She picks up on all these vibes. She's very much of a collector. That's how I saw her. I saw her as a, a girl that was enchanted by her environment and would sort of walk through, pick little things up, decorate herself with them. And that's how she, she was in touch with nature. And Sigourney was absolutely like that. She would come up to my workshop and wander around and pick up things and look at, you know, and I'd say, oh, I was making this for you. You know, I was making this little, and she, it absolutely, I, I hope, and I think opened her mind like to the wonder of it, right? That these beautiful things were real and they were beautiful in real life. So, you know, that there's no, nothing replaces that for many people, that kind of tactile thing. You can look at something and say, that's pretty, but I find too, with all of my samples, once they would get on mannequins, they, you know, you said like, you wanted to be like a museum, like, don't touch it. It's cost so much money to make. <laughs> but when people would wander through your, their innate thing was to touch, like, what is that? Because touch really, really, helps our understanding. And I think in a garment and, and therefore in a costume, and then for an actor, those they're, they're so linked. What, what would you say, like, is there a particular uh, costume that was difficult to sort of come to fruition or come to its final form that you were really proud of the outcome of it though? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I think I, I've said this before and I, I still, I've thought a lot about it. There were a lot of challenges, of course, you know, trying to get things that to work and look beautiful underwater, all that stuff was hard. Um, but the piece that I thought was for me was the most elusive and, and, and incredibly important story-wise. So that was like two things coming together that was like, ugh, you know, it's like when Neytiri at the beginning of the movie, after their idyllic kind of everything's so great on Pandora and then boom, they have to go back to being warriors. And Jim really wanted, one of the things we kind of established clan-wise that the women of stature and warriors would have these kind of high-necked things. Thereon, I set off on doing a lot of of ideas about what that, what which would end up being the sort of bone piece, chest piece with the leaves that come out of the sides. And somehow I knew I wanted it to be skeletal. I wanted it to be light, but fierce. It had all these things that it had to be in my mind, drawing after drawing, after drawing, after drawing. And then we started to experiment with, okay, if it was drawn like that, but how do we make it? How do we get it to hold together? How do First one, too clunky, too, too awkward, doesn't fit right. You know, so again, a movie of this kind of length and because you're dealing with virtual artists, eventually you have, you 
can buy time. So about the third or fourth go around, we ended up, I said, okay, this is a problem because it never looked as delicate as I wanted it to. Yet it had to be represent all this strength. It had to be a warrior chess piece, but feminine. But <laughs> And so finally the design got almost there on paper. And then I'm like, okay, well, this is gonna be impossible to make, which again, we tried a few times, but eventually we ended up 3D printing the bones. They were very delicately put together and then very delicately woven together. And then the, the leaf portions were probably the easiest because making, I think they were mostly made out of fabric, but there were other things in there as well, beading and other things. But the structure of that, that skeletal piece was quite delicate and it would, if it's treated too roughly, it does break. It'll crack because 3D, I don't know if, if you know how many people have worked in 3D plastics, but they get that fine and they're, you know, they're not super strong. So it's been a challenge. We've, you know, nursed that thing. It's, uh, it's in, it's in good shape, but it was, it was quite the journey. And then and, and just getting to that point where it's like, is it going to be too fragile for anyone to wear? And we got through that part. So it exists. And it was, I love the way it looks on her. I think it's an important character and story moment. And that's why I feel most proud of it. Now I have one last question for you. What would you say is your favorite guilty pleasure film or TV show to watch? Okay. Well, there's a genre. There's a genre. Yeah. My genre for guilty pleasure television viewing, and it can be an absolute binge fest is medical dramas. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because for a couple of reasons, one is I love watching them. The doctors all work as a team, you know, that kind of yeah. team effort is, is really inspiring to me. Um, and sad things do happen, which, and I'm a very sensitive, emotional person, so I appreciate that. But for the most part, things really work out at the end. So after your 48 minutes or 54 minutes or whatever you're, you know, it's like, ah, you know, the doctors found the solution. The person was cured. It's just, it's really, it's just restorative for me. So that's, that's it. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you today. Oh my goodness, thank you very much for being interested. So that was my interview with Deborah. I want to thank Deborah Scott for joining me. And I want to remind you that if you like this interview and you like what you heard, go to filmmakeru.com. And when you check out, use the code THECUTTINGROOM to get 10% off anything at filmmakeru.com. Now, this podcast was produced by myself, Jason Banke, and of course, Evan Winch, who's behind the mixing board for us today. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>